people think about real estate as like, I need to go find the best lender. I need to prove how valuable I am for them to loan me money. I need to look all you know awesome on paper, and I need to bend over backwards to court my my agent, my lender, to make sure that they know I am worth their time. That might be true in the beginning when you don't have assets and you don't have cash and you don't have experience that you have to really sell yourself on why people should work with you. As that all changes, as you grow your portfolio, eventually you'll get to a point where people will solicit you like they want your business. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to episode 254 of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have my good friend, David Perret, on the show. David is the host of a podcast and YouTube channel, From Military to Millionaire, and author of the No BS Guide to Military Life, where he talks about how to start building wealth while still in the military. In this episode, he shares how he started investing in real estate while still in the military and how he built his team so he can continue investing even while being deployed. He'll also be talking about how he finds leads and deals, as well as how he uses commercial loans to finance all of his projects. So if you're a beginner and you want to get started with the basics of real estate, then this episode is for you. And by the way, if you're an active real estate investor, then you need to have a solid lender on your team. If you're looking for a hard money loan, I can help. We do hard money loans nationwide at great rates and can close in 10 to 14 days. So if you're looking for hard money loan, you can reach me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Let me know that you're a podcast listener, and I'll give you a discount on our processing fees. And now, on to the show. All right, David, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself, let us know who you are, and tell us what you do. Yeah, I'm David Perret. My platform online, people know me as the Military Millionaire, which is kind of funny because I was not when I started talking about real estate, right? But I just exited the military about five weeks ago uh, in the reserves now after 13 years in the Marine Corps. And over the last five and a half, six years, I started acquiring rental properties. So we're sitting at, uh, I guess, like 102 rentals and then a couple of the properties in limbo between flip and wholesale and, you know, whatever, doing a lot of off-market deals and uh, financially free talk about real estate online. Yeah, and uh, so for those who are listening and don't know, I guess our relationship, we've been in this YouTube mastermind for like two plus years. So we've known each other yeah. for a very long time and kind of seen our other's like platforms grow, right? Because you're also on YouTube, you have another podcast as well. Yeah. Um, why don't you go up into like how you got into real estate investing in the first place? Ooh, uh, well, ironically, it was through the book Rich Dad Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, and to bring my life full circle today, I just launched episode 150 of my podcast where we interviewed Robert Kiyosaki. So, congrats! It was kind of cool to realize, like, oh wow, this is this is happening. Um, I read that book and I was like, wow, this is cool. I was really terrible with finances. What do I do now? And then I kind of, as I was looking and asking questions, I found Bigger Pockets and I stumbled upon. You know, Brandon Turner and their, their podcast and some of his books, and I decided to do the house hacking thing. So I bought a duplex. I lived in one half and rented the other half through the FHA loan, and then was able to cut my living expenses and live for almost free. And eventually the Marine Corps decided to send me on a really terrible duty station to Hawaii for like three years. And while I was suffering on the, the beach there, I started realizing like, man, I'm getting two or 300 bucks a month from this duplex fairly consistently. This is cool. I should, I should, there's something to this real estate thing. This works. I like this. Let me do more of it. And then 
kind of the rest of his history from there was a lot of saving up money to buy the next property and then eventually learning how to find properties that weren't at retail value. And so where were you investing when you were in Hawaii? Uh, I stayed in the same market. So I was a recruiter for the Marine Corps in Southwest Missouri. And when I had that duplex, when I moved out, I, I found a property manager, I had an agent, I had a decent lender. I've actually replaced a lot of that team now other than the property manager. But I was like, well, I have a team. It makes more sense to just keep investing right here than it does to try to you know, go and uh, look for other places to invest, right? Like why overcomplicate it? The market worked, it cash flowed, there wasn't a ton of competition, uh, and it was affordable. I didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, trying to invest in your neck of the woods in like the Bay Area would have, you know, I would have been saving up for uh, probably still to buy property number two. So <laughs> gotcha. it would have been 20% down in your market would have broken the bank for probably 10 years on my salary. Yeah. I mean, a fixer in the Bay Area now goes about a million dollars, which is pretty nuts. <laughs> Right. That's why you invest elsewhere, right? So, I mean, most of our rentals are out of state, right? Yeah. We're in Texas, Georgia, Florida, and our average purchase price is maybe a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Right. So that's like the cost of the down payment for the entire yeah. house. Yeah. Um, Sim- similar, similar markets. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, let's talk a little bit about, about that. In the beginning, you had a team, and you said that since then you've replaced some of those numbers. Uh, I guess from your experiences, what has made good team members versus bad team members, and how did you go about finding good team members to replace those? Yeah, you know, I I wouldn't say that I've had bad team members so much as that I have found better team members. And what I mean by that is just simply as my portfolio grew and as my value to the marketplace as like a consumer grew, right? Because so when people people think about real estate as like, I need to go find the best lender. I need to prove how valuable I am for them to loan me money. I need to look all you know awesome on paper. I need to be this, that, and the other, and I need to bend over backwards to court my my agent, my lender, to make sure that they know I am worth their time. And I would say that's that's like a a teeter totter, right? It's a yin yang. So that might be true in the beginning when you don't have assets and you don't have cash and you don't have experience that you have to really sell yourself on why people should work with you. As that all changes, as you grow your portfolio, eventually you'll get to a point where people will solicit you like they want your business, right? Because you're doing enough volume and enough. So ultimately, like the agent, my first duplex, she was good, but she was just a she was a, a agent that I had found uh, as a li- she was listing one of the properties I was looking at, and so she wasn't super investor friendly. So then I moved to another girl who's phenomenal, and. I would still be working with her today, except that the agent I eventually started using more frequently, I still use her to sell properties occasionally. Uh, The agent I started using more frequently is also an investor, my age, very similar goals, very similar driven, uh, who basically found what I was doing on Instagram and like solicited me or or courted me, right? Hey, I'm going to take you out for dinner. I'm going to take you out for drinks. I'm going to take you out for breakfast. Let's get to know each other. I want your business. Here's what I can do. Here's why I'll beat them. Here's how I'll beat them. Like I'll go out of my way to do X, Y, Z for you. Uh, And he brought a ton of value to me. So then it was kind of a no brainer. Like, all right, I'm going to move my business over to this guy because he is like going out of his way to make my life way easier. Same thing with the lenders. I had a lender who was, he was really good. He did a 85% loan to value on a 10 unit for me. Um, and he'd done a couple 80, 85% loan to value with really good rates, but 
he couldn't go past a 20 year amortization period. And then I found this other lender who was like, yeah, I'll go fixed rate, 25 year amortization, no balloon payment, 85% loan to value, and I'll do it with no seasoning period. So for example, the refi I just signed before we started recording this podcast, I bought that property seven weeks ago with private money and he refinanced it at cash out loan to value 85% with, you know, no seasoning. So like the day I closed on the property, I called him and said, Hey, can we get an appraisal order for this to refinance it? And so he allowed me to buy this property for, you know, close to zero down instead of bringing $15,000 to the table. Right. And so it's not necessarily that I've had bad team members. It's that as I've grown, some of the better professionals through through networking in town, either introductions or people uh, realizing kind of where my trajectory is on buying real estate. People have started coming to me asking, you know, hey, how do I earn your business? What do I what do I do? And they, they start bringing stuff to the table that uh, makes it really hard not to add them to your team. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I mean, even as a hard money lender, we poach other people's clients. They try to poach our clients and try to offer them better terms and better services, especially the you know higher tiered ones. And, you know, speaking of financing, financing is a huge component to building your real estate portfolio. Um, you know, we do hard money loans for our fix and flips, but for some of our properties over in Georgia, we are doing commercial financing. And just like you said, it's like usually a 20 year schedule, 85%. Um, and most of the time they do want like a five year balloon, right? So it's like a 20 year schedule, but every five years you need to refinance. Yep. What's, what's like the situation you have with the other lender who's doing like, what was it? 85%? with no seasoning period and was like a desktop appraisal or something or no balloon 25 am like how is that how's that do, how's that possible portfolio lender okay so they, gotcha. they're keeping it yeah they're keeping it in house um and and honestly like and he goes to bat for me so like this this property the, appra- the appraisal came back in not low i mean it, it was totally like i bought it for 90 it appraised at 100 but i was hoping for a higher appraisal it was just the property's in rough condition and so like the bank was kind of like, Ooh, this isn't a very pretty property. We don't know if we want to lend on it. And then he went to bat for me. It was like, yeah, well it rents for this much and he'll renovate it once we give him the money to, um, yeah. Cause they care more about you as well. Right. Because they know you as a person and they know that you can like cover it. You're good. You're good for the money. Yeah. I just asked him today. I, I'm buying a, uh, I have a really weird deal. I'm closing on the first where we're going to let the we're saving somebody from foreclosure, but she doesn't have money to move elsewhere just yet. And so in order to make the deal work, we're going to let her live in the property for a year, not paying rent so that she can save money to move on to the next one. But we got a very significant discount to make that worth our time. And I asked him today, I was like, Hey, uh, can you work with me on a loan? If I've got a lease with somebody for $0 a month, like, are you guys going to be cool with me refinancing into a rental where, you know, I'm not making any money on it for a year. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, well, we'll just balance it against the rest of your portfolio. And as long as they cover it, we don't care. I'm like, okay, cool. So, uh, you know, so it it is, it gets very much gets to a point where, you know, they know you're going to pay, they know your track record. They know what your portfolio looks like. I mean, at this point he's got, I don't know, four and a half, $5 million worth of loans from me. So, you know, as long as they're all getting paid and there's cash flow on top of that, he's willing to play ball. And is this one like particular local bank? And, it is, yeah. Okay, got it. So like, you basically have to have that local connection to be able to do that. Yeah, uh, and, but I would say, you know, he's not the only person I found who did good turns locally. I, most markets, if you know where to look, you're going to find local banks that are willing to work with you, right? But, but the key there is 
you're not going to find somebody like Ryan who will do all this crazy stuff on your first property. Not unless you've got somebody like like me or, or you or somebody who has a lot of experience in a portfolio and a relationship coming in and saying, hey, this is my buddy. You know, treat him right. He'll he's going to be growing. I'm I'm training. I'm helping him. Right. Uh, you know, you're not going to find a lender willing to bend over like that until you have a track record. That's right. And what are you typically paying for these kind of commercial rates? Uh, so this one's kind of weird. Uh, I've got I've got two different structures with him. One uh, for some, for like my larger properties, uh, he did four point seven five fixed, and that's for the twenty five with no no balloon. But for the smaller ones where there's a little bit. I don't want to say more risk, but they're not like, you know, it's not like I bought a 25 unit apartment that's going to be good forever. Um, he, they are floating rate on what I'm doing with them right now, but they are, they start at 4% and they are capped at seven. So yeah. I would rather take a, a 7% ceiling on a floating rate than have to have a balloon in five years, especially because you're in the lending world. You know, as well as I know, if the Fed does what it's supposed to do, Let's see. It's 2021, 2026. Uh, if you were a betting man, do you think 2026 you're going to be uh, looking at higher interest rates than right now or lower? Dude, there was apparently, what, 6% interest rates that happened this past year? You know? Yeah. We injected trillions of dollars into the economy because of the CARES Act. So inflation, it's coming, right? It's there. So the way to combat that is with higher interest rates. Yep. So yeah. I don't want to have a balloon in five years that I have to refinance into. I would rather have a 7% capped floating rate where there's no balloon and I can just, as long as I keep making the mortgage payment, I'm good. And that's why I feel with our commercial lender too. Like, again, usually they do five-year balloons on a 20-year schedule. But for me, I was like, no, I don't want a balloon. Just give me a 5-5 arm. So that means that every five years they, uh, you know, change the rate based on whatever the, you know, their their mortgage rates are. And right now we're at like 4.25%. So, you know, it is higher than, you know, conventional financing, but they're just so flexible. Like they don't even need full appraisals. They do desktop appraisal. And then you got an 85% of your value. So we did a burr actually, right? We bought this property for like, we bought for uh, 16 grand, right? We put in, it's super small property, 800 yeah, yeah. foot, really small. We put in 13 grand to do everything, right? Like new HVAC, new like ceiling and sorry, new roof and whatever. Uh, so all in for like under 30K, but it's appraised, quote unquote appraised for 55. And so we can pull out 85% of that 55K. So that's like 40 something thousand. So it's like the first yeah. strategy, right? You just get all your money back without putting in that much. So we're thinking about it. And you know what I love about that? Yeah. As, 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 while we're talking about like loans like this, people get so wrapped around like, it's, you know, flipping, flipping that house where if you flipped it and it sold for 55, you get a check for $20,000, right? Whatever. That's cool. But if you do exactly what you just did, you still have the asset you pulled out $10,000 or $12,000, whatever it is, but you don't pay taxes on the money you pull out and you still have the house. So I will do that all day. I am all about long-term fixed debt and you know, yeah, I'll refi. I just basically refied everything to the hilt over the last six months. So like all of my mortgages are like 80 to 85% loan to value because I was like, you know what? I want to keep buying long-term debt. And so I'm going to just keep rolling this right now. Because yeah, inflation, I think for the long-term is going to be very beneficial for us. Yeah. So like right now we have around 200K that we can just pull out, but then it's like, now the question is, what do you do with it? Right? So phase two of our conversation today, what are you doing to find deals? And I guess, what are you also buying right now? Yeah, I know I should have grabbed uh, an example, but uh, I'm doing a lot of mail. So we, you and I have talked about ballpoint marketing, 
before. Um, so I, I use ballpoint marketing. I do a lot of direct mail, uh, whether that's letters or postcards. But I on Monday, I have two cold callers starting for me as well. So those will be my first uh, full-time virtual assistant cold callers. And so uh, really, that's my main. I've done a little bit of texting. I don't really like texting people for deals. It works. It's just... You know, I have to physically send every text message or, or click the mouse through the platform and I've got a lot of stuff going on. So I would rather just drop a box of mailers. Like I've got two boxes that I'm going to just drop in the mail this afternoon. I mean, you could always hire a full-time mouse clicker too. That's true. That's true. But, but most of those full-time like texting platforms have a limit to how many you can send out a day, right? So hiring a full-time cold caller, they can hit a whole lot more than the texting allows to go out. So it's it's kind of a yeah, it's a it's a balance. I'm trying cold click calling. on their lunch break. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um so I've got I am hiring uh cold callers just because it's what my friends have had experience with. Uh so I will be doing direct mail and cold calling uh, and then have a acquisitions partner who goes out and actually goes on the appointments and does all the negotiations and tries to lock up the deals and then I am uh really just hanging out back here doing data management and working on my my platform yeah what kind of uh i guess volume are you doing in terms of direct mail like how much are you sending out and like what are you sending out for like single family properties duplexes what are you trying to get yeah uh volume kind of kind of fluctuates i've got a like for right now i've got a, a thousand mailers that are going out on the first week of every month uh letters for the first week or first month and then postcards, different postcards for the next six months. So that'll be like a recurring campaign. And then last month I purchased and sent another, well, I guess I purchased 7,000. I probably dropped those mailers over uh, seven weeks. So I guess a month and a half, I dropped 7,000 mailers plus those thousand. So probably, probably doing, probably averaging about four or 5,000 mailers a month right now. And then on the cold call side, we'll probably be closer to 10,000 phone calls a month, um, and then hopefully grow that up to like 20,000. And then, uh, I'm targeting not so much a specific asset class as much as like need. So what I'm doing is I'm stacking. So I pulled every record in my area that has 30% equity or more. And then, so they have the ability to sell, right? If they have 30% equity, you can negotiate a discount on a property to make a, a win-win for both of you. Whereas, you know, if they own, if they own 95% on the, of, you know, loan to value off like a FHA loan, they just bought last year. There's no way they're going to be able to sell for a price that makes sense for me to buy. And then on top of that, I'm doing, I'm pulling all kinds of different lists. So I'm pulling on the first of every month, I look at look up every death certificate in my county. I look up every lien in my county. I look up every federal tax lien, state tax lien, uh, power of attorneys that were pulled, Liz pendants, like legal action against a property, um, vacancy reports for the county. And I'm taking all of those different individual lists and uploading them into, I use a, it's called REI SIFT, and it kind of stacks it all together. And then we'll pull uh, absentee homeowners, out-of-state absentee homeowners, uh, balloon mortgages that are due within the next two years, uh, high interest rates, so anything over like 7%, so like people who are doing hard money. Um, I'll pull that if it's been more than six months. So like in theory, they're kind of starting to feel the, the itch on, on timeline. So if something wasn't going right, they're going to start getting the urge to sell. And so we're looking for 
motivation, right? Pre-probate, probate, pre-foreclosure. Uh, we won't touch actual foreclosure once it's been, you know, going into that process as much. Um, and just kind of what I'm trying to do is stack all of that data together so that I can sort it and say, hey, this house has uh, somebody just passed away. They, so it's probably going to go into probate. They was owned by somebody out of state. So they probably don't even like whoever died probably isn't even in the state. So that's going to be a kind of a pain point for anyone else who inherits that unless they live in the state that has a lien against it. And oh, by the way, it's got a code violation from the city. So the city acknowledged, hey, maybe there's overgrowth or, you know, there's a window missing or whatever. So it's like all these different pain points. And then those are what I'm really trying to target. And then we also, uh, you know, like I'll have my cold callers calling all my returned mail. So if I send out 10,000 mailers, probably 500 to 1,000, well, probably 500 is coming back as return to sender. And so they'll call all of those. And yeah, that's kind of the, I guess the, the strategy is looking for pain points. Yeah. And when you're saying like looking up like death certificates and liens and all that stuff, how do you go about actually doing that? Because I don't, I don't know how to do that. Yeah, yeah. So on those, you basically have to scrape county websites. And so what I've done is I've been hiring a guy from Fiverr who does like data scraping, and I basically said, "Hey, here's this data. Here's this county website. I need you to go and pull all of these different data. So points, because uh, it's all public record, right? It's just a matter of." figuring out where to find those public records. So another one that I haven't, like a prime example of something I haven't been able to crack the code on yet. Public, you know, like public usage or what's, what's it called? There's a, hang on, I've got it. Oh, Freedom of Information Act. That's what it is. So like water, utility, stuff like that. The Freedom of Information Act technically means that like your city utilities is required to release data on like people who've had water shut off, right? So the problem is like, my county, good luck trying to pull that list because I've been on the phone with like 10 different people over there and none of them have any idea how to pull that data. <laughs> so it's like, it's not that they're telling me no. It's just I can't seem to get anyone on the phone who knows how to get me a list of everybody whose utilities are shut off, which is a bummer because that would be exceptionally valuable if I was the only person in town who could <laughs> who could get a water utilities, right? Because if a house doesn't have water, uh, the odds are that it's vacant or or worse, that uh, that owner needs help, right? So um, aside from that, you can go onto your county website and you can find, you go to like the recorder of deeds or, or county records and their website should have like, you're looking for like a real estate search or you're looking for a lien. And so what I'm doing is I'm pulling death certificate records. I'm having this guy scrape all the data and then I'm having them go back and this is painful, right? So this is not something I recommend you doing yourself unless you just have an abundance of time. And you're going back into the like tax records, like the recorder of deeds, like real estate search, and you're typing in. So everyone who had a death certificate, you're typing in their full name to see if a property pops up. And then once that property pops up, so if it's like John Smith, no, no property attached. Uh, John R. Smith, no property attached. Luke Holmes. Oh, hey, this guy owns 123 Main Street. Great. Let me go into PropStream, 123 Main Street, and I'll add it to a list of uh, 
you know, death certificates if it was a somebody I found who had passed away. And then from there, I'm exporting it and and sending mail to it, you know, once I'm done with all those lists. So I'll go through every single death certificate and bounce it off the county records to see if they owned a property and then upload that property into PropStream so that I can pull the mailing address. <laughs> and yeah, it's a, it's somewhat of a painful process, but what it does is it allows you to go in and say, hey, I now know that this house has you know, whatever. Right. So all kinds of pain points. I mean, I've got properties on my list right now that have like six things. So it'll be like, Hey, they have a code violation. They have a lien. They haven't paid their taxes this year. Uh, they're in pre probate or pre foreclosure. Somebody died and they have, you know, they're own it free and clear. And you're like, okay, like this person needs to sell their house and they can sell their house. So then you're like, okay, we'll send them a letter. Oh, it came back return to sender. We're going to call them. Now we're going to text them. Now we're going to go knock on the door. Now we're going to call them. Like this person needs to sell their house to somebody. So, you know, should be me. Right. And, you know, I had a, what, Chad Carson on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He, and he said the same thing. Like the more difficult it is to find a deal, usually the better chance you get it. And it's probably going to be a better deal because like no one else is just, you know, going to be able to get to this person just easily. Yeah. And Absolutely. then of those like, you know, 8,000 pieces of mail you send out, what is your expected return rate in terms of, uh, people calling you back or leads and how do you even handle those leads? Yeah, I'm getting about one to one and a half percent response rate. So 80 to 120 leads, uh, like qualified leads. And then we're going in and, um, you know, maybe we get an appointment with 60 of those. And I mean, this is in theory, right? We get an appointment with 60 of those and then we can, I would like to get to where all 60 of those. So I closed 25%, right? So 15, um, Mm -hmm. right now we're probably closing, four or five. So, uh, not quite as much of a rate, but we are in growing pains. Right. So, but I mean, if you send out 8,000 mailers over two months and you get a, uh, you know, a, you close five deals, right. That pays for the marketing for the next month. You just grow into it. Absolutely. How, how do you even handle like the 80 to 120 leads that come your way after sending out a big batch of direct mail? Cause I don't, I don't imagine you being the guy that picks up the phone and talking to all 180 people or 120 people. Well, two things. One, I I like ballpoint because instead of all 8,000 mailers going out at once, they send the boxes to me so I control the flow. So what I do is every Saturday, I will drop off two boxes, so about 1,000 letters. And so, you know, it's probably like 8 to 12 leads that come in on the next Tuesday, Wednesday, which is much more manageable than, than 80 to 20 or 80 to 120 all in one week. And then also, I am currently using... Uh, it's called call Porter, but, uh, as I grow, I will eventually evolve into my own lead intake person who answers the phone right now. I'm basically paying a call center. So it's like 500 bucks a month for them to answer all the phone calls. They take the phone call, they screen them out. They input all their data into my, uh, CRM or I use re simply, and then, uh, they will schedule an appointment. So if the person's like, yeah, actually I would like to have David or Andrew come out and look at my house, then they'll schedule it on my calendar. Uh, so it'll just pop up, boop, appointment. Oh, you know, assuming everything works out right, we drop those mailers off, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, we get a bunch of phone calls, and Thursday, Friday, we do a bunch of appointments. Um, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. I sent out 7,000 mailers over the last two months, and they were all like seniors with equity, so people who, you know, very elderly who had a lot of equity in their home, uh, but they didn't really have pain points other than that they're getting old. Right. So that's a very slow list and we didn't get a whole lot of calls compared to like normal lists. So the the thousand I'm sending out this week is all like 
super stacked where it's like everybody has at least three things wrong with them or their property. So hopefully we'll get a much higher response rate on these because people actually are like, you know, we need to sell our house. All right. So the we got a foreclosure lead two weeks ago, you know, and that was a the lady had we not shown up, she would have gone into foreclosure this week or next month. So, you know, we essentially saved her from losing her house. I mean, she's going to lose her house, but she's going to get paid when she loses her house and not have a foreclosure on her record that ruins her credit, right? So And she has a place to stay for a whole year. So That's, that's true. I did I did mention that on this one that we're doing we're letting her stay for free for a year. So yeah. but we got a good deal, so it'll work out. So you've also you mentioned REI Sift and you also mentioned Resimply. Are these two different platforms or did they do the same thing? No, they're different platforms. So REI Sift is growing into being a more effective like full on CRM, but I currently use RE Simply for managing all my leads and follow as far as like all my appointments and follow up schedules. Uh, it's just it's what I've grown into and I really like it. REI Sift is more of a data management tool. So like RE Simply is like a lead management tool and REI Sift is like my list. So it's how I stack all my data together to figure out who I should be marketing to. So REI Sift saves me a lot of money on the marketing front and then RE Simply hopefully earns me more money because I'm following up with people and actually getting deals. Okay, got it. Are you right now doing most of these things by yourself or do you have like a, a main partner that you do most of your deals with? Yeah, I brought in a acquisitions manager uh, as a partner. And so he's doing, I'm doing a lot of the, some of the data management uh, and he's doing like the lead management and acquisition side. And how do you go about choosing partners? This was kind of more of a like, we'd known each other for a few years and he liked where I was going and kept uh, kept bugging me and saying that we should you know, pull together and, and try to see what happened. Um, so this was probably a little easier as far as decisions go because he's a good guy. I know how he works. And then also he's knocking my door down trying to, trying to work with me while I've got other people in my market who are like, I can't hire anybody. Nobody wants a job. Oh, my goodness. I can't find anyone. So I'm like, all right, well, I should probably take the guy who's banging my hatch down <laughs> that I know and figure out how to grow with him as opposed to saying, well, I don't want to do anything or, or oh, you know, whatever. Yeah, I think having the right partner really helps a lot. Like traditionally, I don't really partner that well with most people. Um, I partner with Sharon, obviously, because it's, it's easy. She's my fiance. But, you know, with other like friends or family members or just like acquaintances in the real estate space we're in, it's hard to find like a long-term partner because over time, I think people's goals change too. And it's like, I don't want to be caught in that spot where if we eventually part ways and we have all these properties together, like, how do you manage that? But uh, I mean, if, if it works, it works, right? I mean, but it's, it's a valid concern, right? Yeah. Because I mean, I remember before you left, or I guess right when you're about to leave the military, you were in this like pretty big hotel deal, right? Did that end up going through? Yeah, we've, uh, we've been operating that thing now since April 5th. Yeah, that's been a love-hate. We haven't pulled any cash flow from it yet. We've been doing a lot of CapEx, but uh, we haven't, you know, we're not losing our shirt. And when the busy season come back, comes back around, we should start making a pretty good chunk of change off that property. So we uh, we found that off a letter too. What do you think was like a, the biggest challenge that you weren't expecting when dealing with a hotel? People. <laughs> so uh, I partnered with two people on that. So it's me, my buddy Hugh, and my buddy John. John was my roommate in Cali. And, you know, we had, when we took over the hotel, there were seven employees. There are currently seven employees, but I would say, I want to say five of those seven are new. 
So, you know, since April, we've turned over at least five, if not more. We've only had two consistent um, since we took over, right? So it's it's training, it's systems, it's, hey, we don't do it that way anymore. Um, and then it's it's putting people in different roles. We moved people from one building to another building and one role to another role and took the manager and got rid of him and brought in a new manager. And um, so it's that part, right? That is totally different from dealing with like an apartment complex where you just hire a property manager and say, let me know if you need anything. <laughs> so, Yeah, because now you're in the service business. You're the service industry yeah. instead of just like the uh, housing industry. So you have to make sure that staff is well-trained and when guests come that they're serviced appropriately. Yeah, and then you're, you're doing uh, – you're going to do Google ads and Google reviews and hook up Airbnb and build a website and link Expedia and TripAdvisor and Booking.com. And when somebody doesn't like something, you have to go and talk to them about it and figure out why they left you a three-star review instead of a five. And uh, yeah, it's a whole different beast. Interesting. So in the future, do you think you would continue through that route or would you go back more towards like the residential side? It's probably a better question for like a year from now when I assume <laughs> that hopefully we're making the money that we think we are. Right now, I would say no. Uh, but that's just because that's the normal growing pains. You take over a business that was poorly managed, a lot of capital injections, a lot of stresses, lots of, you know, whatever. If If I was having to manage this myself, no way. With partners who are actually doing the like day-to-day operations it's not nearly as rough on me as it has been on them um but it's it's still stressful so i i think i would but uh, i wouldn't say that definitively until we make it through like a full year cycle and make sure that we're actually making the kind of money we think so theoretically this will be my most lucrative property to date uh, so it's just a matter of like making that theory a reality and then yeah absolutely yeah, I mean, the deals with the most hair on them tend to be the ones with the most upside potential. Otherwise, you wouldn't even bother, right? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 had some, some fun. And a lot of it is like things you would just never know, right? Like we got blindsided by the city saying the other guy wasn't paying sales tax. So, you know, we owe sales tax that we weren't tracking, even though our system said we were paying it. We weren't apparently and uh, got hit with a big tax bill and then, you know, like had a big water heater go out. And everything on a big building like that is, you know, if, if our if our commercial washer dryer in this uh, hotel were to die at the same time, it's like $30,000 to replace the massive washer dryer in this thing. Whereas, you know, like an apartment is like four or 5,000 and in a house, it's like two. So, so it's uh, a lot of, a lot of growing pains and, and learning experiences. And then things like, you know, the, the seller told us his utility bill was 2,500 a month. Well, I don't think that was wrong. It's just that he was also operating at a much lower occupancy than we are. So when we ran the numbers at 2500 a month, we didn't see that, hey, once we get up to 40, all 40 rooms are occupied, that number goes up to 4500 to 6000 depending on what time of year. You know, so it's just balancing all that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And since leaving the military, you've been able to dedicate – you know, your full effort into real estate investing, into your content creation space. Why don't you tell me a little bit more about that? Like, how's that been being full time in this realm? It's been good, man. It's a, it's a roller coaster, right? Income comes in all at once and then all the expenses come in at once. And then all the, you know, it's, it's been an interesting juggling act and my expenses climbed a lot when I first got out and started building the studio and, and trying to, 
uh, you know, build out the office and, and now, you know, furnishing an Airbnb and uh, building out a marketing team and hiring virtual assistants for cold calling. And like, there's been a lot of just different expenses and also different income. Uh, and then I've really struggled with like balancing my schedule and a lot of different things personally. So it's been stressful in a lot of ways, but it's been good. I mean, it's, you know, I'm not putting out as much YouTube as I wanted to. Like I thought when I got out, I was like, now I'm going to put out a video every day. Well, no, that sounds great. But the reality is now I'm going to have all sorts of other things taking time out of my, you know, day to day. So yeah, it's been a, been an interesting journey. Lots of learning. You know, when I left my full-time engineering job, I think it's been about two and a half years now. So like July of like 2019, um, I felt the same way. I was like, oh, I'm going to do the podcast full-time now. Uh, I'll be real estate investing full-time. But then for the first six months, I didn't actually have that much to do. And I have I had a little bit of an opposite problem as you. Like I didn't have the systems and the deal flow coming along that really justified me leaving a full-time job. Uh, now I am like incredibly swamped because I just do loans all day long. And I wish I had more free time to do like more YouTube and stuff. Like I haven't even been to our, our mastermind groups in like almost two months now because we've been so yeah. swamped with our stuff, like moving and whatnot too. It's a good problem to have, but yeah. Yeah, good problem to have, but we, we, we do miss you guys. Well, I guess let's talk about your, your content, right? So you have, you have the podcast, you have your YouTube channel. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and like why you started in the first place? Yeah, kind of a kind of an odd uh, journey for that. It wasn't like I didn't have any grandiose visions of creating a platform and and passive income and all these things to like you know whatever. It was just kind of like I wanted to write a book at some point, and I thought that that book was just going to be like about my time in the military. And then I was like, well, nobody's going to read this, so you know, nobody knows who I am. I don't know how to write. Let me start a blog and, you know, maybe then I'll have a little bit of a following and maybe I'll have, you know, some people who, you know, I'll learn how to write. Um, and then I was like, well, what do I write about? Nobody will, you know, whatever. So I just started like documenting what I was doing with real estate. It kind of took off like unexpectedly, right? I guess the, the name military millionaire or from military to millionaire was pretty catchy. And then uh, I built a decent reputation as just not being like this super pushy, like salesy guy. And so it was, uh, it was just kind of a matter of like consistency. And all of a sudden it was like, wow, I have this massive platform that is actually paying me. Okay. Now I can afford to get out of the military. Like I have all these opportunities and all these different options. And so it kind of came out of nowhere. Like I didn't plan on it growing that way. It was just kind of a like, oh, this sounds like fun. Let's try it. And if it works, cool. And if it doesn't, we'll, we'll stop doing it and try something else. And then uh, now I realize that the brand and platform is honestly more valuable than most anything else that I own or do. And so uh, it's it's been a great journey and I've learned a ton, but definitely, definitely didn't anticipate it being anywhere near as big as it has been. <laughs> and it's definitely a lot more work than maybe most people think about too. Yeah. Like, like I mentioned, like we've been in the same YouTube mastermind group for a long time and we've seen each other grow. Uh, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time to get to where we are now. Yeah. Filming and editing is, is a lot easier than like trying to figure out what to film, what to edit, analyzing what worked and what didn't. <laughs> right. And what do you think have been like some of the best benefits you've gotten from creating content around the space? I think the biggest one is just the uh, like private lending. So like people who are willing to invest in deals with you or are willing to put money into your deals 
so like I, I've you know been able to go and buy a property with somebody else's money as a lender, uh, and then I pay them a decent interest rate, refinance, pay them back, and so I've not had to bring as much money into deals as what I was doing. So I'd, I'd say that's probably been the biggest benefit uh, is just like the the networking, the relationships, and like the opportunity to invest with other people or have other people invest with me. That's so cool. So like, you know how like Sharon and I were planning moving over uh, out of California to Dallas in the near future. Um, Sharon has a much bigger following than I do. Actually, I, I started going on TikTok recently. One of my videos took off, man. I'm like 140K Ooh. right now. So I'm pretty excited on that. Wait, on that like video. 140K views or views. followers? No, no, no. Okay. I mean, that's still awesome. <laughs> that's still awesome. Views. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like maybe just under 6K right now. Nice. Uh, and all this basically started on Monday, right? It just started going, I was like, oh, damn. Um, yeah. But anyway, we do want to start raising funds to start doing more deals and scaling. Like I haven't raised funds really before. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about like how you go about doing that and what are some typical like structures you do with people? Yeah, I will preface with the fact that I'm not an expert on this. Um, I'm still learning. Uh, I probably do it in like the worst way possible. I just send an email that says, hey, I've got this deal. Uh, I'm willing to pay 1.10% interest. It'll probably be a three month hold. Who's interested? And then like four or five people will say, ooh, I'll lend you money for that. And then they do, I do, bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> um, there's a lot of different ways. So a lot of people hold, like will raise a, you know, a much larger amount of money into like a fund that they just pay a continual interest rate on to like 8% and you just get that no matter what. And then they just kind of use money from that pool of, of funds for their uh, deals. Uh, I will probably grow to a point or try to in the next year where I've got, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in a, in a pool from different investors and I pay them a set amount every month, like clockwork, and I just use the money. And as long as I'm making more than that interest rate, then we're good. But right now I'm still kind of testing the water. So I'm doing deal by deal with collateral. I think I would do the same thing, to be honest, deal by deal with collateral. And then are you only raising like down payment portion of this or for private money lenders, they, they fund the whole deal? Yeah, they're funding the whole deal. Okay. And these would be like for fixing flips, right? Not for buy and hold properties? Uh, well, so that's what I'm playing with with this lender. So if I'm buying them for a lower, low enough value, uh, then I will try to do, uh, you know, purchase. Like if I'm purchasing at 60% of current value, then I'll do the purchase with private money and then refinance it into 85% loan to value and pay off the private lender. Uh, alternatively, yeah, fix and flips or uh, like quick wholesale quick turns where I'm just buying cash and then, you know, listing it right away or listing it in two months or whatever. Got it. So it's a combination of both, right? Because you mentioned yeah. that you did have access to really good financing because of that one commercial lender that you work with. So I guess we'll, we'll put in some numbers in case someone's listening and they can't follow. You buy a property, let's say it's worth 100000 okay? And then you're able to buy it for $60,000 from the seller and as a yep. condition, maybe you put in money, maybe you don't. Um, but let's, let's just say you do. Let's say you put in 10000 So you're all in for $70,000 and this private money lender is willing to fund you $70,000 up front at 10% at one point. Yep. And then when you're done with the project in what, one or two months, you go to this other bank, have them refinance you at the quote unquote $100,000 valuation, get 85 yep. back. So now you put 15 grand in your pocket tax-free, you pay off your other lender and you're all good to go. Yep, uh, 15 grand minus uh, interest and points. 
and and loan fees. So that's it'd probably true. be like probably be like ten back in my pocket, and then like twenty five hundred to the lender and twenty five hundred to the bank. For those like that bank financing, are there like no prepaid penalty period or what do they charge you in terms of like fees and? Uh, yeah, it's usually like two to two and a half percent for fees. So, and that's like the appraisal, appraisal included. So okay. it's not the, it's not the most affordable loan process in the world, but you know, I'm okay with that as long as I'm pulling cash out when I refinance and paying off my lender completely. Right. The one I closed today, I actually brought uh 9,000 to the closing table because it, I paid 90 for it and it appraised for a hundred. Yep. And so I brought 9,000. So it was basically like. 2000 and some change for fees, 2000 and some change for uh, the lend, like the private lender financing, mm-hmm. uh, whatever his interest in points. And then I, the other 5000 went straight into equity. So I put the, you know, because I bought it at 90 and I had to buy the loan down to 85 because it's an 85% loan to value uh, on a $100,000 appraisal. So I put 5000 in. But so either way, though, had I purchased that property at a $100,000 valuation, I would have had to put $15,000 down. So in this case, I didn't pull money out. This one didn't go as well as I anticipated just because the property uh, is not a pretty house, so it didn't appraise as well as I was hoping because I, it's a fourplex, so I was hoping he'd use income approach, but he didn't. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, but either, either way, if I'd bought that house as is for hundred k, I would have had to put $15,000 in. In this case, I'm all in for $9,832, and that includes paying the refi and financing fees, paying the lender, so a friend of mine made money off the loan, and putting $5,000 into equity, right? So I'm still in the property for less than 10% down rather than 15% down, and it's the exact same terms and the exact same uh, cash flow as what I would have been. So it's a little bit more complicated, a little bit weirder process, and more money out of pocket than I would have liked to in this scenario, but it's still better than could just come into the closing table with 15 down. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think when we go to Texas, we're going to try to find a solid commercial lender that can do similar terms because the one in Georgia that we have is really great, but they can't do loans in Texas, right? Yeah. And, and someone in Texas, they probably wouldn't do commercial loans to someone that just straight up lives in California, right? You need to have, they usually want someone to live there like, nearby and be a local like professional. So, Yeah, my guy basically told me, if you don't live in my town, or you're not buying a house in my town, I won't touch it. So for example, uh, this is in Southwest Missouri. I had a buddy who's buying a property in Kansas City, about two and a half hours north, and my lender was basically like, well, if he lived in this town, I would lend to him in Kansas City. Or if the property was here and he lived in Kansas City, I would lend to him here. But since the property and him are in Kansas City, we're not gonna lend to it, even though it's the same state. (laughs) So uh, they're like, we want to keep our money here. So yeah, some of those guys, you know, that's the love hate, but that also means right. While that's frustrating, that also means that there's probably a very similar situation for your market where there is a person who will lend you money. They won't lend anyone else money. You just got to find them. That's right. Absolutely. All right, Dave. Well, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for sharing your journey as well as all these cool tricks that we're definitely going to try out in the future. How can people find out more about you? The easiest way is to Google uh, from military to millionaire or military millionaire. Uh, and then you can check out, you can also look up the, the no BS guide to military life, my new book. Yeah. Talk a little bit about your book. Cause I know you put a lot of effort into it and thank you for giving me a signed copy. Uh, <laughs> out back of at course. FinCon. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it, I wrote it with the idea that so my platform is mainly geared towards service members. So while I would say probably seventy percent of this book would apply to anybody who's not in the military, right? There's basic finance stuff and a lot of real estate stuff and and four hundred one k info and investing stuff and personal development stuff. So lots of stuff that would be valuable. I wrote the book with the intent of being a book that you would hand to somebody when they're first joining the military and say, "Hey, look, if you follow everything in this book, whether you serve for four years or forty years in the military." you'll be leaving the military on the right foot, right? You'll understand how to use your 401k, your VA loan, your benefits, how to buy real estate, how to house hack, you know. Uh, it's all the stuff I wish I'd known when I first joined. I made all kinds of financial mistakes for the first five or six years that I was in the military. It's okay. Look where you are now. That's what matters, right? That's it, right? Awesome. All right, well, David, thank you again so much for coming on the show, and I hope to have you back in the near future. Absolutely, brother. Always a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.